Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome, everybody. Thank you again for joining us for Saturday session. Welcome, everybody, on the interactive, everyone here. I'm really excited that we're going to be covering Surah Saad today. Um, you know, these, like, last night we had a, a really intense, also, pre-Halakha session. You know, going through these surahs um, are incredible. It take, makes you really think about yourself, your relationships with others, your friendships, even. And I just wanted to um, comment, like I know recently we were talking about in one of the surahs how important it is to think about the people that you have closest to you in your circle of friends and, um, and how much that influences you know, who you are and what you care about. Um, and so I just thought I would share a story. Um, you know, two of my closest friends from when Mito was in elementary school um, are two of the most beautiful women on the planet. They are... One is actually um, a practicing Hindu, and um, another is someone who's Jewish by ethnicity um, and very skeptical of the idea of God. Um, they obviously know um, the intimacies of my life and that you know I am a very dedicated Muslim in what we do, and you know they're very proud of me um, as you know my close friends. Um, and I and these are like two women that I would absolutely trust my life with and the life of my children, um, and. You know, so, but the, the thing that's interesting is that, as I often think of them almost as like Muslim, but not Muslim, um, you know, we do miss that connection of the types of things we're learning here about like what it really means to be Muslim. So while my whole heart is for them and with them and pray, for, and I pray for them, honestly, that, you know, God will take care of them, guide them, love them, you know, elevate them. There's always that little bit that I'm missing because I can't share that Muslim part with them. And, um, and then I think about some, you know, the, the Muslim women that I know and the, the, you know, the broad range, because some are so beautiful. Again, same thing, I love them, I would trust my life, my children with them. And we share something, you know, fundamentally beautiful and those people to me are just superstars because they get it and they understand like what, what drives me and what I care about. But there's so few of those. Um, my expectations are higher, and the ones that meet that expectation because of that Islamic ethic, like, I just, I think the absolute, you know, sun and the moon and stars without them. And of course, in our work, we meet all kinds of people, and there are a lot of, you know, Muslims that I've met that, you know, I have that high expectation for, and I'm often, you know, surprised, shocked, disappointed when they don't meet that mark, even when I see them and I expect that of them because they carry themselves in a way that would tell me that I can expect those things of them. And so when they don't do that, it, it saddens me because also when we are delving into this tradition and you're seeing like the beautiful, you know, quality, just the gems of this tradition, you feel like it's a disappointment when people don't even value that and don't hold themselves to account to those things. So it's a really interesting time to reflect on that because, you know, it, it really, puts forth the idea of labels, number one. You know, maybe I'm being unfair in judging people by their label. Um, and, you know, it takes time, obviously, to get to know a person and what they're truly made of. Um, and I think these kinds of reflections are just really important. Um, and obviously this message is for all of mankind, not just for Muslims. And so I think there are lessons here. You know, when I see my non-Muslim friends being so much more beautiful than so many Muslims I know, you know, it makes me like reflect and think about that. And, you know, of course we live in an age where Islam is so vilified 
that I, you know, I don't talk, I don't bring up religion with my non-Muslim friends because I don't want people to feel, you know, one at all like I'm trying to convert anybody, clearly. But I feel it's much more powerful for me to um, show the beauty of my faith through who I am and through my actions. And when I get the opportunity, you know, if, if it's casual and normal and not weird, then I might bring up that I'm Muslim and, you know, all of that. But, you know, and just, you know, as an interesting sort of aside, like when I see comments on our, you know, like our YouTube channel or on Facebook or whatever, and people go, what is this group? Are they Shia, Ahmadi, or some new, you know, like strain of Islam? And why is there a woman that doesn't wear hijab as the face of this movement? Um, I sort of laugh because I, I think, you know, man, where have you been living? Like under a rock, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like... Do you not meet people? Do you not know that there are people in the world that are incredibly beautiful that are not Muslim and people, you know, who are Muslim and maybe aren't as beautiful, you know, and everything in between. It's just, it's so funny, you know, um, but clearly what we try to do here is just um, focus on those beautiful virtues and values that make a human being, Muslim or non-Muslim, um, a better human being and a more elevated human being. And, you know, I've heard the professor say, you know, when you meet decent people, decent people are decent people, no matter what they are. And I don't think it's, you know, Muslims seem to be infected a lot with this judgment by label. And I hope that we can stop doing that and just try to set the example for people that we care about and love and, and feel totally fine that we can love people who are not Muslim. It seems odd to say that, but I've met many Muslims who are like, can I be friends with non-Muslims? Of course you can. I mean, but by definition, you might not share some of the things that you really care about. And that's okay, you know. Um, like I said, with my friends, I pray for them all the time because they're so beautiful. I, I, you know, I want whatever is best for them, and I pray that one day maybe, maybe I can be a path to Islam or something, you know, that will allow them to um, find God, you know. Or I mean, one of them obviously has found God in her way, and that's fine. It's not for me to judge, but just to say that um, I want to be surrounded by beautiful people, um, you know, and that's what I'm, I'm shooting for, and, and I hope that, and I know that there will be all kinds of people um, in heaven. We know that from the Quran, so um, not to get caught up on that kind of thing. So that's all I wanted to share. I'm so excited for today's session, and inshallah, um, may it be blessed. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Subhanallah, Alameen, Alameen, Salatu wassalamu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tamam wa ihsanin ila yawmiddin. Okay, so inshallah today, Surat Saad. Um... As inshallah we'll see, the, it's a profound, multi-layered surah uh, that delivers a very important message Of course I you know, I, I will remind everyone that you are getting um, an interpretation of the Surah of the Quran 
that that while paying due deference to the tradition, it is the product of my own personal engagement with the Quran. And so it is the, it carries that perspective. And it, it, it in, in the, um, but inshallah, I, I believe that this personal journey with the Quran uh, has within it a great deal of truth. And it allows us to understand the Quran in, in ways that perhaps were not available to us in the past. So, uh, I say this about Surah Saad, I mean, several of the Surah, the, 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 the way I've dealt with the main message of the Surah, uh, you will not find in, in books of Tafsir, you will find bits and pieces of, of the picture. Uh, but Surah Saad um, has my take on Surah Saad uh, has aspects to it that are very unprecedented or novel and other aspects that are rather very traditional and, and we'll see as we go through inshallah. Surah Saad is revealed in the most authority, say in the early Mecca period within the first five years in Mecca, but probably um, probably in the third or fourth year. Um, and we know that it is revealed after Surah Qaf. The evidence for that is quite extensive, uh, which we talked about last week. And there is fairly convincing evidence that it was also revealed after Surah Al-Balad, La Uqsalu Bihad Al-Balad, and Surah Tariq, and also Surah Al-Qamar. Um, many authorities say that it came right after Surah Al-Qamar. Um, so notice that between Surah Qaf and Surah Saad, depending on on the reports that you read, but it, between Surah Qaf and Surah Saad is one to three Surah that are revealed in between. And you will notice that in Surah Saad there is a, um, an umbilical relationship with Surah Qaf, uh, a further elaboration but a very significant addition and addendum to the dynamic that we witnessed in Surah Qaf. Okay, so like Surah Qaf, Surah Sad begins with a single letter, Sad, 
and immediately the declaration wal Quran wal Quran the zikr the the Quran the book of remembrance it is a book of remembrance as often Allah reminds us that the Quran is it is as if through the Quran we are remembering ourselves it's not that we are discovering a new self but that this this constant return to the intuitive sense within and you remember that in surah qaf we know that allah is closer to us than our jugular vein but Further, in the early Meccan period, we know from what Allah tells us is that within us is the breath of the divine, within us is the innate divine, but we, so many people, either mistake that divinity within as a separate independent god the god of the ego where the ego itself becomes their god um or even if they don't do that in in a in a vulgar sense but they forget the divinity within and quite often they forget the divinity within other people and that's the, the a serious challenge because we we have that um, from the Quranic perspective something that calls upon us to remember and to remember something that is in fact in existence whether we recognize it or not and of course the, that begs the question what does Saad refer to? And you get a great deal in the Islamic tradition that was written on what Saad refers to. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them because many of them are, are rather far-fetched. Um, you know, I'm not going to go into all the... the, the why and how the various traditions of that told us about Saad. But, I mean, to give you just um, uh, a sense of some of the most prominent explanations, Saad said that um, Saad refers to a name for the Quran, a, a sort of a, in the world of of the unseen, that that's one of the secret names of the Quran. Some said that you no, know, it's one of the secret names of Allah. Some said that this is um, rather it derives from the Arabic word musadda. Um, what musadda means. Um, Musadda could mean to oppose something or could mean to follow something. It's a very interesting word because it has this duality of meaning. 
And so they said, well, Saad means that Allah is telling the Prophet and through the Prophet us uh, by by invoking Saad and the the which is symbolic for Musadda, um, that oppose your your position vis-a-vis those who do not be believe should be one of opposition and your position vis-a-vis the Quran should be one of following an ittiba'ah so musadda mu'aradah wal ittiba'ah al-kuffar wa al-Quran as it goes in Arabic I don't think that that's what Saad refers to, um, although, you know, those who are, made that argument or said that it's it, it's one of the secret names of the Quran, they they, they rely on uh, evidence that is persuasive to them. Um, after having spent years studying the various bits of evidence here and there about the various reports. I'm not convinced that Saad actually refers to Musadda or that it is a secret name for anything. Uh, but rather that Saad, like Surat Qaf, specifically refers to see to three critical concepts that two of which we know that Saad in pre-Quranic language was used to refer to, and the third, there is sufficient evidence, or there is convincing evidence, that goes to the, the back to the Prophet and goes back to the Ali Bayt uh, and the companions of the Prophet, um, that Saad referred to the quality of Samadiyya, Allah Samad. Samadhiya means the constant, everlasting, eternal God. Now, Samadhiya also connotes dependability, that while everything in existence is changing, Allah as the Samad means Allah doesn't change. And while everything deteriorates and eventually withers away, Allah as a Samad, Allah doesn't deteriorate and doesn't wither away. And while everything is varying in its dependability, depending on various circumstances, Allah as a Samad doesn't uh, vary. There are no contingents that make Allah less dependable or more dependable. Allah is dependable all the same in a constant, everlasting fashion. But Saad also refers to two other ethical virtues, and that is sabr, perseverance and patience, and sutq and truthfulness. What convinces me even more that the invocation of Saad in this context, before talking about, before beginning with Quran, the dhikr, is that as we will see, these three concepts, 
الصمديه or الله الصمد صدق truth truthfulness and sabr patience and perseverance are critical for the message that surah sad will deliver in fact in many ways these three words sum up the message of surah sad okay so we are alerted with something that catches our attention and makes us reflect sod and in grammar there is a very interesting debate as to whether Allah is swearing by sod or Allah is swearing by a Quran but we don't need to get into that but The Quran, this book of remembrance. And then immediately, Surah Saad does something that for the Quranic style is remarkable. It immediately goes into why is this remarkable? Because you use the expression bell when you are commenting on an ongoing conversation. So you say, when you say bell, it's like saying rather. Or if I'm talking to you and I say, you know what? Bell is the equivalent of that. So, or there is a there is a conversation that is already ongoing and if then i say bell such an x y and z i am saying well you know what there is an important addition here or rather there's an important qualification here so that of course captures our attention right away because what is the ongoing conversation if allah starts the discourse of Surah Sad with Bell Alladina Kafaru fi Izzatin Washikak. Rather, so is there a conversation that Surah Sad came to address and it's responding to this conversation? For instance, when you know, as happens sometimes, like when the woman complained about her husband or complained to the prophet about a problem with her husband and Allah comes and says, I heard this, I heard this dispute going on and I'm going to comment on it. What's fascinating is that when we look at the occasions for revelations, as Bab al-Nuzul, there is no ongoing conversation that the Quran is commenting on. So there is no incident that triggered the revelation of Surah Sad. So grammatically, we pause and we think, well, so when Allah says, Bel, Bel al-Ladina kafaru, Allah doesn't say, Inna al-Ladina kafaru, let me tell you about the kuffar, that they are in Izzah wa Shikak, in vain glory and schism. Rather, 
Allah uses this expression bell. Now, the reason this is significant is a subtle but an important point. It is as if Allah is commenting on an ongoing conversation inside our souls. It's like Allah saying, Hey, I know what you tell yourself. I know what you what you tell yourself in, in secret. What you tell yourself is look at the kuffar. They are so glorious. They're wealthy. They're powerful. They're rich. They're accomplished. They have Trump Towers. They have golf courses. They have Mar-a-Lago or what is uh That's right. Mar-a-Lago. Uh, they they have all this stuff, and it's as if Allah is like, yeah, I know you, I know that that's what you think. Well, let me tell you. Now that's the significance of Bell. And what is the let me tell you that Allah is telling us about? It's as if Allah, you know, just opening up our chests, our hearts. And say, yeah, I, I know that you think often about the wealth and the power of the kuffar, but I am telling you that this power, uh, this izda, an izda could mean power, could mean wealth, could mean honor, could mean dignity. Uh, one of the names of Allah is Aziz. Um, in the dignified, the honorable. Uh, and as we will see, the concept of Izza is very important to Surah Saad. But Allah tells us that they are in Izza, which most people translate as vain glory, but literally, literally, if you want to be literalist, you would say they are endowed with wealth and power. Vainglory is a value judgment about the swell wealth and power, right? But Allah throws this this in this assessment. Izda, they have Izda, they have that power, that wealth, and they have Shikok. Here, if you reading the Qur'an carefully and studying the Qur'an carefully and living with the Qur'an, you pause and say, wait, so what is the shikak here? Is it that the shikak is that they contest Muhammad's message? Is it that they refuse to believe in God? Is that basically the schism that God is talking about? But I submit to you that there's another schism that Surah Saad is alerting to us to that is far more significant for our understanding of Surah Saad. Is that yes, they look like they're powerful, 
and mighty. But you don't see the schisms, meaning the paradoxes, the deep conflicts, the deep fissures in the soul of these kuffar. So it's like saying, I know you're impressed by the glory. That's why we have Bel. But, you know, you don't notice all the problems. Why is this significant? Because Surah Saad is going to tell us about how so many civilizations rose to prominence and vanished. And Allah is telling us, I know that your human beings are impressed by the Umran, you're impressed by the, 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 by the power of civilization, by the scientific achievements, the inventions of each civilization, by the accomplishments, the wealth, the prestige, the aristocracy, the class structure, the, all, all civilizations. But what you don't see is the shikak. And the end of the surah is particularly important for understanding the beginning of the surah, as we will see. So right away, the first two ayahs of Surah Saad in, in just absolute brilliance alerted us to the nature of a Samad, the true eternal, the, the, the truly glorious, alerted us to Sidq, to truth, and alerted us to Sabr, patience, and alerted us to that, that this Quran reminds you of what you innately know. And alerted us that Allah, who is closer to us than our jugular vein, as Surah Qaf told us, knows what is inside ourselves and knows that we often think of the glory and the wealth and the power of the kuffar, but also, so the, it flagged that theme of Izzah, and this is really important to keep that in mind, but it also flagged another theme for us, and that's Shikak, which is also really important. I'm going to jump ahead for a second to just give you a sense of what's coming, and if you study Surah Saad, you'll notice that the word Izzah occurs in Surah Saad again at the very end of the Surah, but it is uttered by no less than Satan. And Satan acknowledges that Izzah, glory belongs to God, but commits himself to undermining this glory by convincing human beings of their vain glory, as we'll see. So it, it, it is a mind-bending, mind-blowing surah because it invites these early Muslims 
And I keep telling you that each surah was a paradigm shift. The difference between us and the early Muslims is that the early Muslims took every surah to heart and spent an enormous amount of time in a state of dhikr with each surah. And so they were able to transform their consciousness through the surah. We are people who are very busy with the material civilization. You know, if we, we're, if we give the Quran half an hour a day, that's considered a huge accomplishment. If even that. But you know, nothing approximating what we saw in Surah Al-Muzammil, for instance, that, you know, you spend half the night doing zikr with the Quran or one-third of the, of, of, of the day, you know, you break the day in three, three parts and so on. But it is important to understand the way that the Quran transformed the consciousness of early Muslims and, if you will, re-raised them, restructured their psychology and their world of meaning. In fancy language, their epistemological framework. Well, that's exactly what the Quran does. So, okay, so it flagged for us these themes of Izda and this theme of Shikak and After these two ayahs that grab our attention and say, oh, wait, we're going to receive some very heavy message here, and I want to pay very close attention because I'm not sure if I'm going to get it, but I really hope I do. That's if you, you know, you're studying the Quran. It took, takes us immediately as if knowing what is inside of us Remember, the, the, the whole notion of these civilizations that rise and dominate the earth and control the earth, and they look like they are impregnable. You know, these empires that have existed in different parts of the earth. Some of these empires would sacrifice human beings to deities, and if from the perspective of the sacrifice, that's the law. And they're going to lose their life, and there's nothing they can do when you encounter the, the structure, the reality of human beings through their temporal laws. They look like they're absolute and unwavering, and that you can hardly differentiate between a temporal law, a secular law, and a divine law just the way you experience them. So the Qur'an right away then reminds human beings of a rather obvious fact. But we need to be reminded of it that there have been so many civilizations on this earth. The story of this earth is that one civilization rises and another falls. And that in every... Min Qarnin, in every Qarnin, every century, 
or it's caught by is it, it, it doesn't refer necessarily to just a hundred years, but could refer to centuries. That if you study the centuries, you'll see all types of civilizations that came up and then crumbled. And but this fascinating expression where Allah tells us Fanadu Wilata Hina Manas Fanadu Wilata Hina Manas. This is translated uh, they call and they called out when the time for escape has passed. Literally, it's accurate, but there's so much nuance that is missed. Fanadu Latahina Manas Wilat is an idiomatic expression that that literally, I mean, um, idiomatically means to say no or you want to stop th something. You want to freeze something. So if I tell you walat, walat means freeze, stop it. Let's, let's just stop, okay? The er early Arabs, when they would go to battle, in warfare, if they see that they are losing the battle, they would yell out, Manas, Manas. Manas means, let's make a coordinated final salvo, final attack. We either perish or we win. The problem with the Manas call for the pre-Islamic Arabs is that it would often cause panic rather than a real final effort at victory. Because when you start hearing people yelling, Manas, Manas, then you know, uh-oh, we're losing this battle. So actually, instead of making you brave for the last salvo, it makes people start running away to save their lives. Now it's fascinating that the Quran here comes and says what is the Quran saying? It's saying that with these civilizations they start calling screaming out for help but when it is too late nothing can help. Here is a scary thought. I get often accused of being a pessimist. I'm not, I mean, well, I don't know, but I'm not. I don't think. But here is the scary thought nevertheless. What if Muslims right now are exactly in this Walatu Manas moment? What if that's why our prayers are not being answered? Because we have messed things up so much 
that the only thing left to us is to persevere sabr is to persevere through the punishment that is due to us and we just have to ride it through what the Quran alerts us to is that civilizations rise but there comes a point where khalas the, the, the books of fate have been sealed and what will happen will happen and these civilizations will crumble or be destroyed but Allah is present in history and that's a very important point a difference between the secular perspective and the Islamic perspective the secular perspective says well you know here are the factors that led to the end of the Khilafah or led to the end of the Axis powers and World War One or led to the whatever but history from an Islamic perspective we are always looking for the moral lessons that God teaches us through history so and, and I, the best example of that is that, you know, you could find, you could think that it's just a coincidence that Arabs found all this oil, or Muslims, because it, it's Muslim lands, because it includes people who are not Arab, like Iran, um, Persians. And, or you could say that it, it was actually Allah purposefully gave Muslims this oil to see whether they're going to do something with it or whether they're going to waste it in consumer items and luxury items as in fact they've done. Um, your entire perspective on life changes completely if you understand God as present in history and that the lessons of history are not hedonistic but but history is like a book written by God it's either a book written by no one or written written by the devil or written by God again for all these kids that talk about decolonial decolonization and decolonialism and all that stuff you you want to decolonize start there another point you, you cannot decolonize as long as you do not understand history as authored by God to convey moral lessons to human beings okay so Allah is telling so no now the Izza the, the glory, the schisms, the destruction of civilizations, and move swiftly from this, look at how much has been accomplished, it's just three ayahs so far, move swiftly to telling us 
speaking to the Prophet Muhammad conveying a critical message to him with Allah saying effectively I know that their attitude towards you is to say because you came from the ranks because you are a common human being because you didn't come from the aristocracy of Mecca and you're an orphan and you're not among the the the, the power holders of Mecca uh, because they think that you don't have Izza, Izza in the sense of glory, that they just say that you must be a saucer and you must be a liar. And their excuse is that you say, well, it cannot be the truth because we haven't heard this before. How could it be that the gods are going to become one god. Now, we are accustomed as Muslims to say, well, you know, okay, so we don't worship many gods, so let's move on. But no, you can't move on. Because what, what is the point about saying, well, we don't want one god, we want many gods? Why? was Quraysh insisting on many gods rather than one god. Remember that the many gods meant centers of privilege and power for the elite of Mecca. Elat is served, is protected, the shrine for Allah is run by such and such family or such and such clan. Everyone that wants to worship Allah will come through us. We will provide, the, they'll have to buy the incense from us. They'll have to buy the animals that will be slaughtered at the, at the um, uh, what do you call it? Um, the shrine of Allah uh, from us, they, we charge for if they want access to the um, uh, uh, to the priests that are serving Allah, that it comes through us. It, it's a very lucrative business. The business of multi gods is a very lucrative business, and it is business business intimately interlinked with prestige and power. So it is not that their disagreement with Muhammad is philosophical. This is, the disagreement with Muhammad is very practical and pragmatic. You want to take all this privilege and wealth from us by saying there's one God that you, everyone can just access, everyone can just worship? So what happens to our entire economic infrastructure that brings us the privilege and wealth? Now, 
the reason that this continues to be relevant and will always be relevant is that yes, maybe we don't worship other, you know, we don't worship little statutes, and but we manage privilege in a way that maintains the exclusion of others and that privileges power and that mystifies power, like I've talked about in the khutbah. That, and this is, by the way, very prominent in authoritarian countries. Um, you know, just even the, the simplest thing. In authoritarian countries, the, the truly rich and powerful have their own little social clubs. They're called Nawadi. And you pay tons of money to belong to them. And you go and you go there, you know, you, you have lunch, you have drinks, you play tennis, you play golf. But it's all anchored in the point of privilege. All the outside world looks at these clubs like the way we look at Mar-a-Lago, you know, uh, mystery. It's, it's just for the truly powerful and truly rich. That is the form of idol worship of our day and age. And what Mecca is telling the Prophet ﷺ is, you, you want to change all of that? You're a revolution against all of that? <coughs> it cannot be, and we will not follow you. Now, there is a narrative that is said, often repeated in this context, that the narrative that when Omar ibn Khattab converted to Islam, Mecca was very troubled because Omar used to be among the privileged. And they went to Abu Talib as Abu Talib was sick and they demanded that Abu Talib put an end to the preaching of Muhammad. And when Abu Talib brought Muhammad to meet with the Meccans to try to um, uh, we can, we can attempt some type of um, resolution between them. The the prophet simply told them, "I there I will there, there I there's I want from you only one thing, and there's nothing else that I'm willing to accept, and that is La ilaha illallah." And they got very upset and said. This is the one thing you want. Well, you. This is the destruction of our entire life, and so often you read this narrative in the context of Surah Sad. Is it an occasion for revelation? No, it's not an occasion for revelation, but it is a, a historical event that the the commentators often mention when they talk about Surah Sad. Okay. Now note. So, here because of that point about privilege and izzah, glory, right? Allah comments about these Meccans or all similarly situated people by saying 
أم عندهم خزائن رحمة ربك العزيز الوهاب they think that they are the gatekeepers of the treasures of God's mercy أم لهم ملك السماوات والأرض وما بينهما فليرتقوا في الأسباب Now this is this is amazing because it kind of says I I know you wealthy people, you powerful people, you think that you own that you can control Allah's mercy. If you've ever lived in a dictatorial country, that's exactly what dictators say do. They they think they are the dispensers of Allah's mercy. When they want, they can be merciful. When they want, they can be very cruel. And they want you to be very grateful. That's why I say despotism and dictatorship is a blasphemy against the law. But the wealthy, even if not in a dictatorship, will often think that, you know, it's me. I decide whether you have a job, whether you have a home, whether you have this, whether you have that. And... فَلْيَرْتَقُوا فِي الْأَسْبَابِ is a fascinating expression because in a way it is mocking them um, wait, sorry it's translated here as then let them ascend by some means that's not what really وَيَرْتَقُوا فِي الْأَسْبَابِ means. فَلْيَرْتَقُوا فِي الْأَسْبَابِ means they think they control the heavens and the earth. Well, let them advance through their accomplishments. اِرْتَقَاءُ فِي الْأَسْبَابِ literally means if you, if you want the, 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 the heart of the matter, like literally means technologies that cause advancements that cause you to become more powerful and more in control. Among the best that I've read about this expression is that every civilization attempts, every civilization that has ever existed attempts it attempts to become more powerful, more rich, more in control. But Allah's call to us is to realize that all those civilizations appear dominant and supreme and hegemonic in earth. The cycle never ends until the, 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 the end of times, I mean, until the hereafter. And there, there are limits to their advancements and accomplishments and that they will eventually crumble because that's the sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in existence. So, 
it is not just that Allah is saying, oh, let, let them try to reach the heavens. But for your talk of it as bad, it's, it's as if saying, well, you know, let's see how far you're going to get through your advancements and through your, your means. Jundun ma hunalika mahzumun min al-ahzab. This ayah 11, again, it's a, here the translation says, a host among the pond parties yonder routed. Um, the, the translation sort of kills the, the, um, the power and the spirit of this ayah because Jundun ma hunalika mahzumun min al-ahzab. Jund, it doesn't just mean, if you, read, if you read it as soldiers being routed, it doesn't really make sense. And in the context of Surat Sad, which is early on, and what war, what battle, what jund, what soldiers? As Imam al-Razi and al-Mawardi and al-Matridi and so many of the Mufassirun point out that Jund here doesn't necessarily mean soldiers. It means people who blindly imitate. People who blindly imitate but are incapable of independent thought. They, they, none of them are independently enlightened or capable of independent thought, but they're like zombies. And because they're like zombies, what they end up belonging to is Hizb. Hizb is uh, translate, it's, it's still used in modern Arabic to mean a party. So they become broken down to parties. And what is this party consists, consists of? It consists of blind imitators. Not people who truly think or capable of independent thought. But rather, they blindly follow within their designated party until they meet their defeat. Now, some commentators said that this was predicting or hinting to the Meccans that they will be defeated in the Battle of Badr some five or six or seven years later. I think that is, um, that's a gloss that is not necessarily there. There's nothing in this that, that makes us compelled to read it as hinting to Mecca that they're going to be defeated in battle, battle of Badr. But what it's clearly saying, it's commenting about those past centuries and the various civilizations that have come up and that 
have been ultimately that have crumbled and the fact that every one of these civilizations attempted attempted to advance based on whatever means they invented whatever technologies they invented and they had their structures of privilege and distinction they had their structures of glory and izza but ultimately the main problem time and again is that they become as if zombified zombified parties you know blind imitating soldiers following blindly until the end Now, note here what the Qur'an did from the first ayah to ayah now 11. It made us pause and think about Izzah and Shikok. Wait, hold on. So, what is the nature of this Izzah and what is the nature of this Shikok? Is the Quran telling us that in fact look at how each of these civilizations rose or does rise and they think they've achieved glory they've achieved Izzah but the very reasons for their defeat is inherent in their own accomplishments that's the Shikok that there are deep schisms and contradictions that ultimately lead to their downfall. Then Surah Saad takes us very quickly, Allah just gives quick references to the, the sort of the, the prototype examples that the Quran uses of people who arrogantly rose and arrogantly fell, rather rose to great heights and rather unceremoniously crumbled. Um, the people of Noah, the people of Ad, the people, the peoples of Wafrahan, Dhul Awtad, Wathamud, Wakamulut, Ashab al Aika, Ulaik al Ahzab. So this is 12 and 13, the people of Noah, the people of Ad, the pharaohs, Thamud, the people of Lot, and, and the inhabitants of the thicket, Ula'ik al-Ahzab. So, why does Allah say Ula'ik al-Ahzab? We know that Allah repeatedly refers to people of Lot, people of the Pharaoh, people of Tamud, uh, people of the thicket, the Al-Aika, Ashab Al-Aika. Um, that Allah frequently refers to these 
people as as prototype examples of people who became very arrogant, very wealthy, very advanced, and unceremoniously crumbled. But this is Surat Saad, they are designated as Ahzab. And that begs the question, what is the significance of Allah describing them as the Ahzab? Now, remember that we were just told that the Ahzab, just in Ayah 11, are those that follow blindly until they are, are crushed or until they fall apart or until they're defeated. And commentators said the Quran doesn't say it explicitly here, although later on it, it, it's more explicit about it. But by becoming people who follow like Quraysh, who say, well, this is the way of our life and we don't care what the truth is, we are going to stick with what the elite and the privileged want because that's the way we live our lives. They have become Hizb al-Shaytan. They have become part of the party of Shaytan rather than the party of with Allah. <coughs> so if you are reflecting upon, upon Surah Saad, you would say, okay, so this is amusing so far on the nature of Izzah and the nature of Shikak. And so far, the Quran has alerted us that there are people that simply that human beings often in the pursuit of glory in the pursuit of Izza, they will divorce the truth they will not care about the truth they will surrender blindly like the jund to those who are people of privilege and power and that ultimately they are Ahzab in the sense that the Ahzab that are mahzum, the Ahzab that are defeated, that meaning the, the losers, the losing Ahzab, the, the party that is blind and imitates blindly and by doing so it has become something that belongs to the world of shaitan more than it belongs to the world of the divine. So if you are reflecting upon Surah Saad and you are within any, any collectivity, you know, a, a community, a city, a country, you would start thinking, what is the type of glory that we as a people, as a nation seek? And are we like the Jund and like the Ahzab? Are we 
blind imitators who maintain privilege and power where the wealthy remain wealthy and the powerful remain powerful and we are not interested in truth or justice as we will see in a second um, because the way we've structured life and if, if we are like that, have we become part of Hezbo Shaitan? Okay. So, as to the past nations, the uh, people of Nuh, the people of Ad, the people of Lut, uh, the, the people of the thicket who no, no one is quite sure. Who, I mean, there's a lot of reports who the people of the thicket are. They, there were people between Syria and uh, Arabia who lived uh, reportedly in somewhere in in what is today a part of Jordan. Um, but anyway. وَمَا يَنْظُرُ هَؤُلَاءِ إِلَّا صَيْحَةً وَاحِدَةً مَا لَهَا مِنْ فَوَاقٍ وَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا عَجِّلْ لَنَا قِتَّنَا قَبْلَ يَوْمِ الْحِسَابِ So 15 Yeah, notice that the translation 15 says they await not but a single cry for which there is no delay and they say our Lord hasten our share unto us before the day of reckoning. The, here the Quran is, is doing something that is fascinating is that it, on the one hand it's talking to the Prophet about the Meccans but on the other hand it is also talking about these past nations that existed and perished. But on the third hand, it's talking about nations to come and forever. So it has multiple audiences. And the verb tense here is very significant. Actually, in the translation, they did a good job by writing the, the verb tense in the present. Each of them did not but deny the messengers to... They await not but a single cry for which there is no delay. In other words, the asayha, that, that call for destruction, is not just relevant for the people of Nuh or the people of Lot or the people of the Pharaoh. And it's not just relevant as a threat to the people of Quraysh but it is eternally and perpetually relevant. There is a discussion as what is meant by Sayha here, because we know, for instance, that the people of the Pharaoh were not destroyed by a Sayha. We know that the people of Thamud were not destroyed by a Sayha. So what is, and is the Sayha here the final day or the fate of destruction? And interestingly, many commentators concluded that, no, here, when it says they, uh, they but wait for the sayha, means that they wait, await for the fate of destruction that they reap by their own actions, that Allah decrees upon them. 
وقالوا ربنا عجل لنا قتنا قبل يوم الحساب and they say now who is it that they refers to عجل لنا قتنا now this is fascinating because قتنا here there's a big discussion about what قتنا means does it mean hurry up and hasten our share meaning give us everything that is good that is due to us on this earth we're not worried about the hereafter just make us rich and and happy now or as many argued that qutana means sahifat amalina that it, it you know allah they're sort of defying allah and saying Why don't you show us our Sahifa? Sahifa is the is your um um what um record record a record, a record of, of accountability. Now this is the reason this is interesting is that so, there are reports that say that the Meccans told uh the Prophet if it's true that you're a prophet, why don't you show us our records of accountability? But these reports are problematic from an authenticity point of view, and so they were rejected by uh, by so many mufassirun. Uh, most actually rejected these reports and said that there is no we we don't have a reliable report that the Meccans would tell the prophet show us our records of accountability. People like Ibn Arabi in his Futuhat writes on about this ayah, this is 16. رَبَّنَا عَجِّلْ لَنَا قِتَّنَا قَبْلَ يَوْمِ الْحِسَابِ writes beautifully about this single ayah in his Futuhat al-Makkiyya and Tustari and, and several others. And they say that, in fact, what Allah is alerting us to is that our relationship to our records of accountability is often, in, in our language today, paradoxical and inconsistent. On the one hand, we don't, it would scares us to think about it. So we do our best to minimize our sins or to forget, say, well, to try to forget them, or to say, well, my past is what made me, and I'm not, I don't regret anything I've done, or to, on the, so it's between, as Ibn Arab says, between denying the existence of a record and fearing the existence of a record. And that, in fact, what we're often 
effectively doing with Allah is saying, Allah, since I, since you are not giving me my record before my eyes now for me to see, then I'm going to pretend that that record doesn't exist. This is the best that I've read about this, this particular ayah because it rings very true to me. There's no evidence that the Meccans explicitly told the Prophet, oh, show us our records. But there's every evidence that in every nation after nation that people live, in fact, um, I don't remember who said this. It, it might have been Ibn Arabi, but I'm not sure. Who said that if you want to understand the if you want to understand the weaknesses of human beings, their psychological failures, their 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 personality problems. I mean, I, 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 that's the best translation I can think of. Understand what they run away from. In other words, what in their record they are running away from. In, from in that passage, I wish I could remember where I read it. But basically saying that human beings are a byproduct of what they spend their life running away from. If they confront it and cleanse it, they become tranquil and balanced. But that's rare. Most human beings don't want to confront anything and don't want to admit anything. And they run their life, they spend their life in a state of denial and egoism because of the record that they know. So the more that they know is, is black and blotted in the record, they cover it up with arrogance and an air of superiority. And that's the connection. I'm pretty sure it was Ibn Arabi now that I'm thinking of it. That's the connection to Izzah and Shikok. Goes back to that central theme. Izzah and Shikok, glory and schism. I mean, it's like if I ask you, what type of glory is your glory? Is your glory one that you assert to cover up your sins? Is your glory one that you assert to cover up your insecurities about all your moral failures that you know about but try to hide? Is your glory truly about a subdued and controlled ego? Is your glory truly about your relationship with Allah? Or is it that you really don't love Allah but you just love yourself? You worship yourself. And because worshiping yourself while acknowledging all your faults and weaknesses that you know about is very uncomfortable, so you do what tyrants do, and that is they oppress anything that reminds them of their weaknesses and their faults. You know the way tyrants, if you confront them with the truth, they send you to prison and torture you? Well, we often do that with our own faults. If anything reminds us of our own faults, we deal with that in a tyrannical way. We, we, we expel people from our lives 
that might make us uncomfortable about our faults. We, ref we engineer our environment so that we only hear what we want to hear and we only experience what we want to experience so that we become like the jund, imitators. The jund fil ahzab. It's a remarkable picture that Surah Saad just challenges Muslims to, to, to think very hard about what is their glory and what is their schism. Two quick notes. When Allah describes when Allah talks about the Ahzab, notice that I, I said Hizb uh, al-Shaytan, but also in, in the, a lot of the commentaries they describe it as Hizb al-Batr. The, the, basically, the, the, the critical idea is that people then identify with themselves, whether it's a family, a tribe, a nation, a ruler, a leader. Um, SubhanAllah, I mean, SubhanAllah. I, because of course I'm, my origins are Egyptian, I I'm keep, I know a lot about what goes on in Egypt. And I'm amazed at how so many Egyptians, despite the undeniable sins that Sisi's regime commits, Despite the murders, the torture, the slaughter, despite the tearing down of mosques, despite the, all the, the, the religious scholars that have been jailed, but so many Egyptians worship Sisi, worship that leader. It, 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 and they're very much like the Hazad. If you oppose Sisi, they accuse you of being Ikhwan, of being Muslim Brotherhood. And they are blind to the, the fact that there are rampant, rampant reports of sexual assault in Egyptian prisons. The security forces rape women who are arrested on a regular basis. Rampant reports of torture, rampant reports of extrajudicial murders and killings, rampant reports of human rights violations in Sina, rampant reports. I mean, we're not talking about, we're talking about thousands of people. And yet, they're like Jund fil Ahzab, you know, exactly blind followers. And it doesn't matter. That's their God. Effectively, that's their that's their God. Um, and if you oppose their God, you're Ikhwan or Muslim Brotherhood or whatever. But it's not just Egypt. It's it's it, we see this in so many levels. Anyway, okay. The other thing um, on the mention of Egypt, the reason that the Quran refers to the Pharaohs Pharaoh and Autad, Autad 
they disagreed. Some said that the reason the 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 frown is is um, it could outat could be a reference to the pyramids that they built these structures that are like mountains. It could be a reference to the fact that the pharaohs were accomplished in building pillars. The famous um, uh, pillars of the pharaonic era. Autad could also refer to the fact that the pharaohs of Egypt used to torture people uh, by tying them to poles. And they would tie them to these poles and torture them to death. I guess certain things don't change. Um, Egypt is still the land of pharaohs. Okay. So notice here, now from the first verse to verse 16, The Quran flags for you what type of Izzah and what is the nature of the Shikok that those people who refuse the message have. It, it, it very unassertively without explicitly spelling it out, but it completely problematized for you the idea of the type of glory that whether the Meccans or people like the Meccans, those who reject the message of Allah. And then now it moves to discussing a different form of Azza, a different form of glory. contrasted to the glory, the vain glory that the Meccans and people, the, 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 the people who oppose the message assert, it gives you examples of a different type of glory. Glory anchored in the divine. And the segue on verse 17 وَاصْبِرْ عَلَى مَا يَقُولُونَ عَلَى مَا يَقُولُونَ وَاذْكُرْ عَبْدَنَا دَاوُودِ ذِي الْأَيْدِ إِنَّهُ أَوَّابٌ So the command is to persevere and be patient, bear patiently that which they say, and remember our servant David, possessed of might, truly he turned off unto God. That, that's a translation for in, in 17. So now I'm talking to the prophet, Allah tells the prophet, persevere patiently. And starts, and this is the most extensive discussion we have in the Quran of David in Surah Salt. Uh, some commentators 
said maybe Surah Tzad should have been called Surah David, but that that's just, you know, as a sidebar. Um, and it will give examples of three prophets, David, Solomon, and Ayub, Job. And we have to pay careful attention to each of these examples that it will give and that form of glory, that form of Izzah. So first, David. He's described as the aid means one of great might, a web. A web is someone who persistently returns to Allah. Um, in a web, in 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 the literature, is often described as someone al musabbih wa zakir fi al-khala' fayastaghfir li Someone who does a lot of dhikr and consistently remembers their own faults, confronts their own faults, and asks and repents for their own faults. Immediately when we know that David السلام, is, is mentioned as a web, or is described as a web, that contrasts with those people who are escaping the record. With David, he is given through Allah's direct involvement something that is unique and singular. What does the fact that the mountains and what does the fact that the mountains would do tasbih with him and what does the fact that tayr or birds flying all types of uh, feathered flying animals would regularly come back to him you read some really fantastical stuff as as a Razi mentions in the story of David and the story of Solomon that the Qusas and Ahl al-Hashawiyya uh, reported a lot of very fantastical stories um, some of them inspired from the Bible but none of them very reliable what as far as we know, we know is that with Dawood, that he could hear a, a unique gift, that he could hear the supplications of the mountains. In other words, the supplications of nature. Allah tells us that everything that is living supplicates Allah, but we don't understand their supplications. 
Well, Dawood was given the ability to actually understand the supplications of nature. And it seems that also that when he, that when he would pray, uh, there are many reports about the intensity of his prayers. This contrast, by the way, in the Islamic narrative, Dawood is a very pious human being who prays a lot and who repents a lot. And there are stories, exaggerations, that, for instance, he did sujood and remained in sujood for 40 days. Not likely that that's true. But that he would do, his prayers were, were events. There were monumental events. And that nature would pray with him. So clearly he had an impact on nature. This contrast, by the way, of the, the picture of Dawood in the Bible. If you read about David in the Bible, David is a rather um, powerful, very powerful, but not a very pious figure. Uh, a, a figure who's powerful and, and taken to, commits a lot of atrocities, to be quite honest with you, in the Bible. Um, and in fact, at one point, angers God and then wrestles with God and defeats God and demands that God bless him. And so keep in mind that this is the, now in Surah Saad, the first time that the Quran starts talking about biblical figures with any degree of specificity, particularity. But what the Quran says about them is very different than the biblical narrative. This was something that Quraysh didn't miss because they said that, well, Muhammad was just reporting what you remember when we did Surat al Mudathir that the accusation that, uh, or Surat also, we encountered this in Surat Qaf, that the accusation that oh, there, there were some. Uh, Christian, Christians who converted to Islam who were telling him what to say. But lo and behold, when Islam, when Allah starts telling us the stories of David and Solomon and Ayyub, is very different than the biblical narrative. And it insists on rehabilitating these figures in a way that contrasts sharply with the biblical narrative. And so, Ayyub is a man of great piety, of great repentance, so pious that nature literally prays with him, supplicates with him, and not only that, but Allah, and this is again unique to, to the Islamic narrative, وَأَتَيْنَاهُ الْحِكْمَةَ وَفَصْلُ الْخِطَابِ a man not just given great might, blind power, as the Bible often portrays him as, but a man given great wisdom. وَفَصْلُ الْخِطَابِ it's, it's a remarkable expression. When someone is so eloquent that they get the final word. Why do they get the final word? Because no one can match their eloquence and their logic. That's Faslul Khitab. 
So it is not that he's tyrannical. He's actually painfully just and painfully conscientious. Okay, then it starts telling us about the story of these two litigants. Dawood is in his mihrab, in, in, in his prayer area. And there are, you know, there are stories that, again, not very reliable, that he secludes himself and, and says, I don't want to see anyone, I don't want to talk to anyone. We don't need to get into that. What we do know is that Dawood is doing what he does a lot of, and that is praying. And two litigants literally climb over the, the gate of his house and come into the mahrab. They are unannounced. They don't take permission to appear before him. And when they are before him, interrupting his prayer, what is it that they want? They demand justice. And in fact, they say, فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَنَا بِالْحَقِّ وَلَا تَشْطُطْ وَهْدِنَا إِلَى سِوَاءِ الصِّرَاطِ Now, note here something that so many commentators, the prophets of Allah, are not just about believing Allah, but about justice. And that the straight path is the path of justice. So to have injustice and talk about it as an Islamic past is a contradiction. It cannot be. You cannot have injustice and say, I'm doing Allah's will. So when they appear, their demand is a, is a moral education in glory, in izzah. Rule justly and abide by the straight path and don't you dare rule according to your whim. Wow. Dawood is scared. Why is he scared? Because these two didn't come announced. They didn't come through the regular channels, but they 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 uh, uh, violated his privacy basically and interrupted his prayer. And they are confident and resolute. They are they don't seem to be in awe of him at all. And what is he presented with? You say, whether they're brothers or they're neighbors, it's not clear. But one of them is very wealthy, has 99 calves. The other is not wealthy at all and has one. And the, the, the one who's not wealthy says, my brother has demanded that I give him my calf, basically that I sell it to him or that I enter into some business deal with him where he takes the one calf that I own. 
وعزني في الخطاب means that pressured me insisted upon it now Dawood's reaction to this السلام, is an innate sense of outrage an innate sense of outrage and what does he say you say, well, he has wronged you by demanding that your one animal be added to his 99. And then he comments that وَإِنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنَ الْخُلَطَاءِ لَيَبْغِي بَعْضُهُمْ عَلَى بَعْضِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَقَلِيلًا مَا هُمْ And he comments on this by saying الْخُلَطَاءِ It basically associates people who deal with each other and laments the fact that so many people are unfair to each other and they're unfair, they look after their own personal interests, they're blinded by their own egos, and they commit transgressions. And the wood says it's really sad that so many people live unjustly. And unless people are abide by good deeds, by, by faith and good deeds, it's easy for them to commit these types of transgressions. But then comes yet David Dawood Zanna Zanna Wazanna Dawood Annama Fatanahu Dawood suspected and the reason it's normally uh, translated as understood because they say that this is the type of dhan that is a strong conviction that Dawood then believes firmly or becomes convinced that he has been tried by God and he repents so you pause here and say, okay, so I get it. The glory here is a glory that humans cannot achieve. And it is a glory Allah doesn't, unlike the Bible, doesn't pause at Dawood's battles and victories. Doesn't pause at Dawood's, the number of his wives doesn't pause at the palaces or the, the, the temples, but at the woods relationship with nature and how he connects with nature through supplications and prayers. 
and that that is a glory unlike any other. And you say, okay, I get it. But part of his glory is wisdom and eloquence. And part of his glory is that he is a meticulously fair judge. So why is he repenting? Why, what is the trial here? Okay, now we get into, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, this is the famous story of, I think her name is Beersheba. Is that right, Beersheba? Yeah. That Dawood is somewhere one day and he spots a woman bathing naked. She notices him, that he, that he spots her. She covers her body with her long hair. But he is, he is struck by her beauty and he wants her. And according to the Bible, not only that, but Dawood goes and has sex with her. So there's adultery. And then Dawood sends her husband to the front lines in battle with the Hexus. And her husband is killed. And then Dawood marries her and she will bear Sulaiman Solomon, Prophet Sulaiman, Sulaiman, for him. And that according to the Bible, what this is about is that God sends two angels and the angels say the story that you read, I have 99 cows or cows or whatever. And the, the other says, I have one. In other words, Dawood, who already has many wives, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, he has, I don't know, I don't remember, like a hundred wives or something like that. So, the repentance is telling him that he coveted the one wife that was married to that military commander that was killed in battle. And while he has already so many wives, so in other words, that this whole drama where angels that have manifested in Dawood's mihrab in order to tell him that he did wrong when he wanted to marry this woman, take her for himself, and cause the death of her husband. Islamically, that story caused a huge problem. For one, in the Bible, David fornicates or commits adultery with this woman. It is said that Umar ibn Khattab was so upset about this that he said, if I hear any of you repeat the story about David committing adultery with Beersheba, I will flog them for slander. 
And it is all commentators in the Islamic tradition rejected the, the biblical narrative about Dawood committing adultery. What they struggled with was whether, in fact, there is this story. Did, did he, in fact, see her naked, fall in love with her, sort of unconsciously or consciously send her husband to a place where he got killed and then married her and that but why would Allah tell Dawood that he erred by sending these angels to act out this dispute about 99 cows versus one cow rather than just tell him you've messed up and you should repent so, in the Islamic tradition, there are those who accepted that the story of the two litigants is the story of two angels that come to Dawood to educate him about his moral failure when he coveted this woman and eventually married this woman after the death of her husband and that that's what causes the wood's repentance, although all of them rejected the adultery story that found in the Bible. But many other Muslim commentators, like Razi, for instance, but many others, rejected the entire biblical story and said the entire biblical story of the wood is, is unbecoming of a prophet to see a woman naked, to fall in love with her, to then cause, send her husband to a dangerous place, her husband to get killed, to marry her husband. And he said that this is among the khurafat, the, the, the uh, mythologies, biblical mythologies. So what is then the story of the repentance? And here we get a very different narrative. The two litigants are not angels but rather actual litigants. What did, what did Dawood do when the litigants appeared? The first litigant, the poor guy, said, my brother wanted my animal and pressured me. Dawood immediately says, this is unfair. So many Muslim scholars, I'm, I'm skipping over the evidence they cited for the interest of time, but so many Muslim scholars said the error here was a procedural error. The rule ruled that this was unjust without hearing from the other side. In other words, without hearing the full evidence that although the optics looks like it's unfair, but we don't rule by optics. We, there is a procedure that you have to stick to to accomplish justice. And that's the sin that Dawood repented for. Because he realized, I screwed up. They just warned me that I shouldn't rule 
too quickly or according to my whim or according to... But in fact, I reacted. It's fascinating and I have to mention this because of, you know, what Islamophobes say and the way Muslims react to Islamophobes, unfortunately. If you read the same story of Dawood in the Bible, it is, it is full of tantalizing details, sexual details. It is remarkable that when the Quran deals with the story of Dawood, we get a very different picture of Dawood. He's a very pious man. And he is a very meticulous man about justice. And all the, 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 the pomp and circumstance that you find in the Bible about David is not in the Quran. Which does beg the question, well, if the Bible is the prophet's source, how do you get this very different narrative? Now, th this is a, a point that, just so you understand the debates that go on about the text. But note here, then, let's go back to the point of Izza and Shikok, <clears throat> pride, glory, and schism. With Dawood, with David, notice his glory and the challenges of his glory. The Quran introduced the Surah with Saad. And we said Saad stands for what? You guys remember? Sabr, Sidq, and Samadhi, right? Now, keep that in mind as we go through the, 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 the other stories. So here, that's the story of David. So, Allah comments to Dawood, Ya Dawood, inna ja'annaka khalifatan fil ardi fahkum bayna al-nasi bil-haq wa la tattabi' al-hawa fayudullak an sabi'lillah inna al-lazina adulluna an sabi'lillah lahum azabun shadid bima nasu yawm al-hisab Dawood, we have made you a khalifa, a viceroy on earth. Now, this is fascinating because in Surah Saad is the first mention of the concept of viceroyship, which will become central in the Quran. Viceroy on earth, so do what? Accomplish justice. And don't follow vanities. This is the path of your Lord, because if you don't, the consequences are not going to be good. And a lesson about justice and glory 
And the type of schisms, the type of shikak that could constitute impediments in the path of achieving justice. Then Allah comments on this and says, وَمَا خَلَقْنَا السَّمَاءَ وَالْأَرْضَ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمْ وَبَاطِلًا ذَلِكَ ظَنُّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فَوَيْلٌ لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنَ النَّارِ This is 27. أَمْ نَجْعَلِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ كَالْمُفْسِدِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَمْ نَجْعَلِ الْمُتَّقِينَ كَالْفُجَّارِ كِتَابٌ أَنْزَلْنَاهُ إِلَيْكَ مُبَارَكٌ لِيَدَّبَّرُوا آيَاتِهِ وَلَا يَتَذَكَّرَ أُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ So Allah comments then after telling Dawood, but Dawood is long dead. Dawood, we made you a viceroy, established justice. This is directed at Muhammad and the followers of Muhammad. Then Allah says, do they think we've created the heavens and earth in vain? Yes, this is what the kuffar think. Here, pause for a second. As so many noted, if you believe that the heavens and earth were created in vain, in vain meaning there is no purpose, they are accidents. Or they were created by God and then God became disinterested as, and, and left, not involved. What is the incentive to establish Izda glory through justice? But it doesn't stop there. Because Allah says, listen, do you think that those who believe in truth and do good, those who live by virtue, are like those who are mufsiduna fil ard, can mufsidina fil ard, are like those who corrupt the earth. Now, an ifsad fil ard will be repeated in the Quran later on several times, but in Surah Sad is the first time where we get the concept that kufr is not just disbelief, but that if you want the Sirat al-Mustaqim, it is the opposite of Ifsad al-Ard. It is the opposite of corruption on earth. Now, is justice corruption on earth or, or the opposite of corruption on earth? It's the opposite of corruption on earth. Injustice is corruption on earth. So, again, keep in mind the concept of Izzah here. Ten years ago, when I was struggling to understand the point of Surat Saad, 
I sat an entire night repeating these two ayats. أَمْ نَجْعَلِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ كَالْمُفْسِدِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَمْ نَجْعَلُ الْمُتَّقِينَ كَالْفُجَّارِ Do we live in a relative world in which good and bad are mere shades of each other? Or does goodness exist objectively and the opposite of goodness exists objectively? This is 28. And كِتَابٌ أَنْزَلْنَاهُ إِلَيْكَ مُبَارَكٌ لِيَدَّبَّرُوا آيَاتِهِ وَلِيَتَذَكَّرُوا أُلُوا الْأَلْبَابِ A book that we sent. So, may you, so you may reflect on it. And that those who have albab, who have reason, may come to understand. An entire night I repeated these two verses. Six or eight hours, I don't remember. Asking Allah to open Surah Saad so that I may understand it. I may understand what Allah wants to say. Or Allah is telling us not wants to say. Allah is asking you, do you think in a world that Allah is created, in a world that doesn't exist vainly for no point and no purpose, do you think that those who cause corruption on earth are like those who don't, those who do good? Do you really think that things are just relative? Now, I'll tell you what happens when you sit repeating this for six hours at night. Images of what corruption on earth starts flashing in your mind. Maybe the first hour you're just saying it. The second hour you're just saying it. But by the third hour, images of destitution, homelessness, hunger, rape, suffering, torture, starts flashing in your mind. And you realize what Allah is saying when Allah is telling you, I do not ever support corruption on earth. Those who want to attain glory, but their glory maintains this type of corruption, they are people in Chicago. Let me be very blunt. You build a civilization, but your civilization has tons of homeless people, tons of stateless people, tons of starving people, Tons of dispossessed people. Has tons of people who are trafficked and sold into slavery and raped repeatedly every day. 
your civilization that has the Champs-Élysées and Miralaga and all that fancy places and Las Vegas ignores all the suffering that is corruption on earth, is that glory or is that shikok? That's what happens when you sit and you supplicate for hours. And then when Allah tells you, this book, I've sent it, Mubarak, blessed, so you may reflect. When you keep repeating that, you realize that this book is a revolution against the type of ugliness and suffering that Allah aptly describes as corruption on earth. Surat Sad is in using a reflection, it's a dabbur, on the nature of glory and nature of shikak. If your heart is blind and you see Las Vegas as glory or New York City as glory or Paris as glory and you don't see all the ugliness, the cost of that glory, then what does Allah have to say to you? Then you know nothing about the Quran. That is why I cannot, because of nights like this, I cannot keep quiet about all the injustice that I witness in the Muslim world. And so maybe, why can't you talk about pleasant things? Akhi, why don't you talk, you know, you're depressing us, your khutbahs depress us, you're, talk, you're always talking about torture and prisons and suffering. And, you know, why can't, because it's the Quran that commanded me. It's not me. After that intervention in which Allah gets us, sorry, let's take two minutes. I'm sorry I got emotional because I remembered that night the night of beauty and glory and understanding and anchoring. May you experience something like it in your life. When you live begging Allah to allow you to truly reflect and understand so that the Quran becomes a part of your soul. And the time comes when you feel that Allah answered your prayer. And the Quran has become your soul. May you experience something like it. After that intervention in which Allah tells us, ponder, reflect. This is not just a surah. This is the entire philosophy of life. Allah takes us to Sulaiman Solomon. Solomon again in the Bible, read it for yourself. See how Solomon is portrayed in the Bible. He's portrayed as an Israelite who is very tribal. All he cares about are the Israelites. 
in the Bible, Solomon is married to something like 500 women and has 100 slave girls. He has sex with all of them all the time. In the Bible, Solomon is a ruthless warrior like David who butchers non-Israelites left and right. But look in the way that the Quran describes Solomon. Truly pious, constantly repentant. Now, the story of the horses. Solomon has an army and has bred horses that are beautiful. In fact, Solomon's entire military might depends on these remarkably bred horses. One of the most powerful expressions of the entire in the Quran فَقَالَ إِنِّي أَحْبَبْتُ حُبَّ الْخَيْرِ عَنْ ذِكْرِ رَبِّي حَتَّى تَوَارَتْ بِالْحِجَابِ All this made Solomon's heart. He loved أَحْبَبْتُ حُبَّ الْخَيْرِ عَنْ ذِكْرِ رَبِّي I became distracted by all this material wealth over the remembrance of my Lord. Now, in the tafsirs, they tell you a story that is not very reliable, that Solomon was standing watching the horses, the horses kept running until sundown, and then Solomon realized he missed Asr prayer. And when he realized he missed us prayer, he was very sad and very repentant. I was so distracted by the horses, I missed us prayer. Uh, again, we go back to the whether this is a reliable report. It's not very reliable. But it's widely reported. Rather, what seems what is far more reliable is that simply he became distracted. He became focused for, for how long, whether how many prayers, in, in what sense, we don't know. But Allah told us that he became distracted. And he was distracted by the wealth that Allah had given him. Now, this is 33. Bring them back unto me, and then he began to stroke their legs and necks. What is this all about? Okay, two narratives. One narrative is that Solomon, upon realizing that he had become distracted by his love of these beautiful horses, said, bring them back, and he sacrificed all of them. He punished himself by killing the horses. 
But as so many commentators pointed out, well, but this is not fair to the horses. What did they do? And they said this cannot be true. And in fact, I don't believe it's true. Rather, what Solomon did as he repented is exactly as this tafsir, the study Quran says, he's stroking their necks. Petting them, in other words. So that's one distraction. That's one shikok in this glory that was given to Solomon, right? The other, then the Quran tells us, is that we cast a corpse upon his throne, and then he repented, saying, My Lord, forgive me, and bestow a kingdom upon me that shall not befit anyone after me. Okay, what is the story of this corpse upon the throne? Here you read an enormous amount of narratives. Some of them, again, taken from the Bible. Some narratives tell you that the power of Solomon was in his ring. Through that ring, he controlled the jinn, the ring of Solomon, which, by the way, in black magic has a huge role. Um, that um, it, it, so when, when he would go to the bathroom he would take it off and he would leave it with one of his trusted wives and that a jinn came and pretended to be took the image of Solomon and went to the wife and took the ring from her and when he took the ring from her he he became the sovereign. He controlled, he, he possessed all the power that Solomon has. And Solomon was cast away from his palace and lived as a fisherman in, in the market as a commoner and was denied his kingdom for a number of days until he was able to retrieve it. So that's one of these stories. Another story tells you that Solomon one day swore he's going to have sex with all his wives and all his slave girls, according to the Bible, hundreds of them, in one night, and he's going to have, from every one of these women, he's going to have a child so that he would increase his military might. And that he forgot to say, inshallah. And because he forgot to say, inshallah, although he went and copulated with all his wives and all his slave girls, uh, they bore him one child, but was stillborn. The child was born dead. And that that's the corpse that was thrown upon his, that's the corpse that was thrown, I mean, uh, corpse that was thrown upon his throne. Others tell you, there are many fantastical stories that, uh, that what, Solomon had a child, and then he tried to protect the child by hiding the child from the jinn, and then the, the child died, and the jinn threw the corpse of the child upon his throne. All of that is unreliable. All of that, all of it, is from the Ezraelite traditions. In other words, they were taken from either the Talmud 
or from the Torah and Islamized not very not very strongly because there, there are very few changes but when you look at the chains of narration they're extremely problematic all of them so what is the story of this corpse then the best thing that I've read because Allah doesn't tell us about this corpse and if Allah doesn't tell us then it's not material for us to understand precisely what the corpse is but what we do understand is that there is a state of virtual death upon that throne and a rebirth. And Ibn Arabi and Ismail Haqqi and Tustari and Jilani and so many others say that it is Solomon himself that in the state, in that period of oblivion, where he became distracted from his role as a prophet, it is Solomon himself who became like a corpse on the throne. It is Solomon himself who felt like he is dead. And when he repented and rejected material possessions again, he felt like he came back to life. And that's the best of Sira that I've read. Upon his repentance, when he, when he reclaimed himself, resurrected his soul, because he was given quite a test, an enormous amount of power, a power that according to so many of the of the traditions say that in the old days jinn did interact with human beings if you ever watched a show called um, ancient astronauts on the history channel and they talk about how they suspect that it is um, um, Aliens who built the pyramids or helped build the pyramids and aliens built this and aliens built that. Every time I watch that, I sort of actually remember this because the evidence is that jinn did interact with human beings. And up to the time, the, the power that was given to the prophet Solomon is that he could control the jinn. And that the jinn, in fact, he could control them so much that they would do jobs for him. They would build things for him. And that that type of power, that type of glory, ended with Solomon. A lot of the practices of black magic, by the way, to our very day, to our very day, is an attempt to reclaim the language that the Prophet Solomon used to control jinn and to then use that language to call upon what they believe are spirits, but are in fact jinn, to do their deeds, to, to cast spells and stuff like that. Is it real? In my experience in life, yes, it's real. 
Are there evil people who can call evil jinn and the jinn actually do their bidding and harm other people for them? Yes, I believe it's true. Do they reclaim bits and pieces of the language that Solomon knew and mastered to control the jinn? Yes, I believe it's true. Take it or leave it. I mean, you don't, if you don't want to test what I'm saying and go challenge one of these black magicians. I would strongly advise you against it. Um, you don't want to go and say, I don't believe in this stuff. Go ahead, cast a spell on me and put a curse on me. I would strongly advise you against it. You don't know these powers and you'll be messing with things that you don't know and you don't understand and that can just completely destroy your life. Okay, so Solomon's glory is clear. He's given an unprecedented amount of power. He is tested. We understand his schism. He, pre he prevails over himself through repentance and achieves amount of power that human beings are incapable of achieving because it needs the divine. Who comes next in the order of Quranic narrative? Ayyub. Now David was a, a, a king who owned, who controlled nations and armies. And according to the Quran, ruled justly and by meticulous justice. David's glory was sutq, was truth. Solomon's glory was samadiyya, a complete reliance on the exceptional abilities of the divine, a break with the laws of nature. But how about Ayub? Now Ayub is a poor man, salam, job, and he has children, many of them die, and he becomes destitute and poor. And he becomes very ill. And he suffers with incredible illness for years and years, living an absolute life of misery. According to some of these narratives, again, not very reliable, that Shaitan comes to Ayyub's wife and says, I will heal your husband. But tell Ayyub that upon healing him, my condition is he thanks me and not thank God. And his wife is tempted and goes to Ayyub and says, how about it? You know, you've been sick for so long. We are so poor. We need the break. Why don't you take the offer? And Ayyub becomes extremely upset with her and swears to strike her a hundred lashes. In a different narrative, his wife goes to get bread, but 
she is very late, and as he he thinks that she she abandoned her, and says, "I swear, if I ever see her again, I'm gonna strike her a hundred lashes," and that's the test that he confronts. Both of these narratives are not very reliable. A far more reliable narrative is that Ayub's wife gets tired of his piety. He is constantly suffering and constantly saying, Alhamdulillah, this is what Allah wants. This is so on and so forth. And she blows up at him. She loses her temper. And she says, I am sick of you always thanking God. What are you thanking God about? For the misery we're in, for the suffering that we go through. And he gets very upset and he says, by God, I'm going to strike you a hundred lashes. But what is the test that confronts Ayub? And something that everyone misses. Because of patriarchy, everyone misses the test. Ayub never despaired, never gave up on God. So what is the test? The test is that he lost his temper and swore to strike his wife a hundred lashes, although she was wrong. And Allah gives them a way out by saying take a hundred weeds tie them together and pat her once and that's your oath people miss the point that his failure his fault his his shikak is that he got angry and uttered an oath that he shouldn't have uttered. And Allah says, okay, I'm going to give you a way out. But what is Ayub's glory? If this is Ayub's fault, what is Ayub's glory? And here, the Quran is exposing us to a very different type of glory. David's glory is power and justice. Solomon's glory is this exceptional gift from Allah that none of us will have. We are told it, no one will have the powers that Solomon ever have. But Ayub's glory is what? Perseverance and patience. His glory is that he suffered and endured. Remarkable, beautiful, symphonic. If you only understand the Quran. We understand now the Quran started out with the Kuffar are in glory and shikak and took us to examples of glory that are divinely based 
and the shikak that could exist in the divinely based glory and the corrective measure for each. The Quran quickly segues to Ibrahim, Isaac, and Jacob. Ibrahim was tested by being thrown in hellfire, in hot fire. Isaac, possibly tested by the story of the slaughter, although Muslims disagree whether it was Isaac or Ishmael. Jacob was tested by losing his child and becoming blind. These are known as Ulil Azm min al Rusul. Ulil Azm meaning people who are tested and persevered. And then a brief mention of Ismail. <coughs> I don't know how to translate it. Yes, sir. So, 48. Oh. Yeah, Ismail, Elisha, and Dilkif, who was an, uh, an among the um, Arab, um, the, uh, among the Arab prophets. And then the Quran, as often the Quranic style is, talks about the results not in this earth, in the hereafter, and the, the results in the hereafter, heaven. And hell. The main thing I want to say about the, this, because we, 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 this is a constant theme, about uh, the heaven, um, Well, actually, no, not about the heaven, but about the hell. Uh, is that when he says uh, 58, let's see how do you translate it. So let, let them taste it, a boiling liquid and cold murky fluid coupled with other punishments similar in kind. Oh, they translate a similar in kind. Um, uh, it says... Uh, this is 58. Um, the main thing is that is it, it gains importance in, especially in Sufi tafsirs when again they return to the to the theme of um, that the punishment in hell is the embodiment of your sin in entities that confront you. Uh, of course, the, the translation that just says more of the same is very different. Could be understood the way Sufis understand it as, as literally an embodiment of your sins that confront you. Um, and I'm not going to pause at 
that um, that the 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 promise that or that Allah says that the schism among the people in hell is that they start blaming each other and the mention of the fact that people will say where are X, Y, and Z we thought they would end up in hell with us but in fact they aren't. Um, so this is 62. And the only thing I'll, I'll, I'll say about this is that most commented that when you get lost in the vanity of earthly glory and a misunderstanding of the nature of glory in earth, your assessment of who is good and bad becomes fundamentally messed up. So you start truly thinking that very decent people are evil and very evil people are decent. And so when you end up in the hereafter, you're saying, I, I, I mean, imagine some of the, uh, you know, some of the white supremacists. And, you know, they're, they're going to be looking for Muslims in hellfire, for instance. <laughs> and say, where are the Muslims? Why aren't they here? And, you know, well, you truly got it all wrong. Um, Okay. Now, note 69. مَا كَانَ لِي مِنْ عِلْمٍ بِالْمَلَئِ الْأَعْلَى إِذْ يَخْتَصِمُونَ The Prophet, or Allah tells the Prophet, tell them, how would I know the types of themes and things that I am talking about? How would I know the, the fact that the schisms, that the, the glory that people enjoy on this earth will turn into the khasm, into, into actual hostility and animosity among the, the losers in the hereafter? Um, in other words, I'm, I talk about things that I would not have direct knowledge of, but I have knowledge of from God. That's often something that's commented upon in Surah Saad. Then Surah Saad, after the interlude about heaven and hell, takes us to something that the, for the first time in the Quranic revelation, the Quran addresses. We know that the Quran later on returns again and again to the narrative of creation. But in Surah Saad, the way this narrative is woven in is so critical. 
So Allah says, when Allah tells the malaika, the angels, that I've created a being and now I've blown life into that being from my from my soul or my spirit, my divinity. The divinity within. So prostrate before that being. This causes a pause for so many Muslim Quranic commentators. Why? Because we know in Islam that you only prostrate to Allah. And no one prostrates before anyone else except Allah. So why is it that Allah tells the angels prostrate before human beings? And the only answer is because of that divine substance within. They're not prostrating because of the teen, of the fact that human beings were created from clay. They're prostrating because of the divine substance within. Now, remember the lesson from Surah Qaf. Each one of you human beings is so important because you carry the divine substance and you are constantly under watch by the watchers. There is no such thing as a human being who's an accident or a human being who's worthless or a human being who doesn't count. Now here, so they prostrate Except, of course, Satan. And Allah says, Satan, why didn't you prostrate? And Satan says, you've created this thing from clay and created me from fire, and fire is superior to clay. Note how this goes back again to the same theme of what? Glory and schism. Shikok. For Satan, glory is defined by trivial things like what you're made of or in our modern language by your color and your race. So it is true, and I let me tell you that, I mean, I was the first to say that race is the, racism was the original sin. I've seen that then was taken by a number of Muslims, of course, and as usual, they, they, they took it without attribution. Okay, alhamdulillah. But... This is something that I know that I will meet Allah with, that, that it was Allah that allowed me to see that racism was the original sin. 
And I believe that that was, I still remember the night, the same night that I talked about, that saw when, when, when a paradigm shift was being introduced to these early Muslims. It's not your skin color that matters. It is not your status. It's not your tribe. It's not your family. None of that matters. And in fact, Satan screwed up because for him it mattered. That blows your mind. I'm telling you, I still remember that night. How is it that we didn't see that? It's so obvious. It's there. Racism was the original sin. Satan says, well, no, I'm not going to prostrate. His glory is dogmatic and as superficial as the glory of those who disbelieve that we were introduced to at the very beginning of the surah. But note here, it says, فَقَالَ أَنَا خَيْرٌ مِنْهُ خَلَقْتَنِي مِنْ نَارٍ وَخَلَقْتَهُ مِنْ تِينٍ I am better than him. You carried me from fire and him from clay. Of course, like all bigots and all racists and all ignorant human beings, Satan overlooks or ignores the part that's divine. Remember when I told you that devil attacks, the nature of devil attacks is marked by their irrationality. They don't make sense. The demonic will always focus on something and ignore many things. It is never, like David, a comprehensive outlook of justice. And it is never like Solomon, absolute repentance to the point that you feel that you have been reborn. And it is never like Dawood, perseverance and patience in front of absolute hardship and self-control so that you don't commit injustice against someone when they anger you. The demonic's glory is always off the cusp. It's always shooting from the hip. It is always reactive. Do you see? So, when Satan then vows to take vengeance, but note this remarkable thing says Satan talking to Allah says قَالَ فَبِعِزَّتِكَ لَأَغْوِيَنَّهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ إِلَّا عِبَادَكَ مِنْهُمْ الْمُخْلَصِينَ By بِعِزَّتِكَ Remember the beginning of the surah was عِزَّة and شِقَاق and now Satan is saying فَبِعِزَّتِكَ By your glory I will mislead them now, here, the, the, the paradox is remarkable. It is as if Satan is saying, by your glory, 
I was I will mislead them into a false sense of glory. By your glory, I'm going to mislead them into a false sense of glory. Except those who are truly committed to you. Those I, 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 those I can't do anything about. So that's Satan. A pro... A... 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 a uh, um, a symbolically constructed being who is committed to vain glory, to false glory, like white supremacists, like racists, like you know every ignorant tribal fool who says you know Persians are superior, Arabs are superior, Egyptians are superior, Americans are superior. They don't care what the facts are. They don't care what, what history is, what science is, what truth is, what facts are. They are committed to ignorance. In case you say, well, really, why would Satan be so committed? Just look around you. Look around you how many people ex do exactly what Satan does. Precisely what Satan does. Regardless of the consequences, this is what I want to live by, because it makes me feel good. So, now this remarkable, unbelievable expression, where Allah responds to Satan and says, "Qala, falhaku walhaka akul." Now, why is this so amazing? Khan, Allah is referring to Allah's self. And Allah is saying, Allah said, Al-Haqq, truth, and the truth I say. Now, here is a very interesting point. It is like saying, Al-Haqq qawli, so, truth is what I say, and what I say is the truth. There is an interesting grammatical point. Some said that this should be so it should be if it is mansub like that, then it is a ta'kid. Then it is Allah telling you it is verily, absolutely the truth. If it is as exists in our printed Qur'ans, Then it means truth, the real truth, comes from me and me alone. Truth, the truth that comes from me and me alone, 
you will come to know the consequences of your journey. And hellfire will be filled by your followers, you and your followers. Then Allah turns back to the Prophet and says, remind them that you are but a warner, a conveyor of a message. You don't want anything from them. Because this is nothing but a remembrance للعالمين. And you will come to know the truth in due time. Now, step back and think about what Surah Saad told us about Izza and Shikaf, glory and schism. It told us that there are situations in which there is black and white, truth and falsity. And these situations surround us all the time when people deny God, establish material civilizations, great material achievements, as the Quran puts it, but they're empty morally and their schisms, their shikaq, will be the very means by which Allah's blessings are not bestowed and they crumble as they rose. Now, there is the glory with God, but the glory with God sometimes is marred by obscurities or shades or grays, like procedural injustice. You're well-intentioned, but you mess up procedurally. Like losing heart and becoming distracted by wealth, but it is repentance that brings you back. Like persevering in suffering, but losing your temper and getting angry and saying something you shouldn't have said or do something that you shouldn't have done, but you repent and you come back. As long as your anchor is with Allah, your glory is unlike the glory of shaitan. But if you are not anchored in Allah, then whatever glory you build, it is a shaitani glory. It is hizbush shaitan, and it will end with shaitan. That's surat salt. Now, that I told you what I think, what, the impact of surat salt, which as I said, we had surat al According to many reports, Surah Al-Balad, Surah Tariq, and Surah Al-Qamar. Surah Al-Qamar is actually quite, we'll talk about it inshallah when Allah tells us to. But Surah Saad 
was clearly a what, what the it is not just the the number of people that came to Islam through because of Surah Sad, but which interestingly enough, I mean, it, there are some reports that Surah Sad was among the things that brought Omar in al Khattab to Islam, and the the people who converted shortly after Omar ibn Khattab. But it was a total paradigm shift in the understanding of what constitutes dignity, what constitutes proper pride, what constitutes an, a sense of confidence that a human being should be endowed with. And according to the Meccans, who complained to Abu Talib, is that more and more their servants and their slaves were becoming proud of themselves and defiant. They weren't groveling. They weren't without honor or pride like they used to be. And what is this? What is Muhammad doing? Why is why are the why are people now his followers who are our servants and our slaves are now acting like they're entitled to dignity? What is your Quran doing after Surah Qaf and Surah Saad? And that was a huge part. That is why I say it is a complete paradox, the idea of a Muslim without dignity. Study the seerah. What Islam did, it gave people a sense of honor and dignity. Regardless of your status, regardless of your race, regardless of your class, regardless of your gender. That's why Islam was Islam. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alhamdulillah. You should pray mother, right?